0: Did you know that during the war in Iraq, insurgents would often plant fake bombs to study the U.S. response? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about bomb hunting in Iraq on this episode of The Curious Professor. In this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll be speaking with former U.S. Army bomb hunter and author Eric Herrera. But first, a trivia question. Which two famous rivers flow through Iraq? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Eric Herrera on my podcast today. Specialist Eric Herrera served in the U.S. Army as a combat engineer. He's the author of the memoir, A Bomb Hunter Story, My Life Clearing the Roads of Iraq. When I learned that Eric spent his military career searching for bombs, a subject I know very little about, my curiosity was immediately piqued. I hope this interview with Eric will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Eric. It's great to have you here. You're the author of a bomb hunter story, My Life Clearing the Roads of Iraq. What made you decide to write the book?
1: The point of my life where I was dealing with a lot of things that was going on, it was already ten years since I left the military and things were being said between uh, guys that were already with me during that time and um, some of them were like half truce and things like that but around that point I just kind of had my final breaking point and I just broke down in a, with emotion in my kitchen and uh, for me it was finally time to say what I was feeling and I decided to put it down on paper.
0: What motivated you to join the military at that point in your life?
1: Time I was in college, I was going to Northern Illinois University. I didn't participate, if you want to say that. Uh, I was more worried about the party life and things like that. I wasn't really going to class. I ended up getting kicked out of school and my mother gave me an ultimatum, uh, You'll either live here with me, get a regular job or go to community college. And I didn't want to do that. I actually had friends at the time that joined the military and I spoke with some recruiters, but I think it was time that I actually go myself and ask questions.
0: And then what what was the next step? What made you decide to enlist?
1: I actually spoke with my uncle, who was a former Vietnam vet. I never talked to him my entire life. He always worked the night shifts, things like that, but I knew he was a Vietnam vet. I ended up going to his house and had it over an hour conversation with him about the military and found out that he was actually a combat engineer. And that was the job that I was looking into. Uh, he gave me some advice on what to expect things like that but since Vietnam it's been over 30 years so it was kind of things were changing but he was giving me an overview of uh, where I would be going I ended up going to Fort Leonard Wood Missouri for my basic training and that's where he went so he warned me of the heat and the humidity and things like that and what to expect
0: you mentioned in the synopsis for your book at That going through basic training gave you the courage to do things you hadn't realized you were capable of. Would you give us some examples?
1: At the time when I was at Northern Illinois, I severely gained a lot of weight. And to the Army standards, I was overweight by almost 100 pounds. I'm 6'3", but at the time I was 270 pounds and I needed to be at 180. And During that basic training, I actually ended up losing between 60 and 70 pounds in those 16 weeks. I played sports all my life, but I was in the best shape I've ever been, even when I was playing sports in high school and things like that. It gave me more confidence when I was in high school and things like that. I had really low confidence in myself and things like that. And the military gave me a lot of confidence to build on and uh, to go on with the rest of my life.
0: Tell us about your experiences as a bomb hunter. Let's start out with how does someone become a bomb hunter?
1: So it's a MOS is called a combat engineer. But at the time before the Iraq war, the description for combat engineers was clearing minefields and building fortifications. That description was mainly for World War Two and Vietnam soldiers. But since the roadside bombs were being a big thing at the time the military decided to use combat engineers as these bomb hunters or route clearance what we would call them we would learn different procedures on how to take care of things. But it wasn't until actually when we got to Iraq, we developed uh, our own procedures on things. And since we were so busy my first deployment, the military adapted those procedures and that became standard operating procedure for units that were in other parts of the country.
0: It's such a fascinating career for me to you know hear about. Um, I'm very interested in what the job is like, like on a day-to-day basis.
1: I yeah, said it's um, six days a week. We were the only one of the only units that actually went out almost every day. The one day would be down for maintenance, uh, make sure our vehicles were working properly, things like that. So the missions would be roughly between 8 to 12 hours long. We would be going five miles an hour down the road, uh, looking out the window, trying to find IEDs. The thing about Baghdad, where I was, is that there's little landfills everywhere. So in the medians, there's trash piles that are stacked high and just different things that are in them. The enemy would hide these IEDs in these trash piles and they would just disguise them very well. So going five miles an hour down the road was something we needed to do. But over time, being on these routes over and over and over again, we would actually memorize these trash piles. So if these trash piles did look disturbed in any way, nine times out of 10, there'd be something that was actually there and we would find it. The procedure would be as we find it, make sure it's real because sometimes we come across fake ones as well. And we would actually end up call EOD, which is uh, the disposal units in the area. Depending on where we were, it would actually take them maybe about an hour, two hours just to get out to us. So we would be sitting, making sure no one was going near the ID, things like that. They would come out, inspect it, come out with the robot, put down a charge, and then they would detonate on the spot, and then we would continue mission. We became so busy that we would actually have EOD units come along on mission with us because <laughs> we were going to find something. We never went more than two days without finding something. That's how busy we were.
0: Wow, that's a lot. And and especially because you weren't the only people who were doing that job, there were other units who were doing the same thing. So that's a lot of bombs when you think about the number of men on these missions and then the number of units of men doing this.
1: Yeah. You know, so we we had our company and there was three platoons. One would go out in the morning, one go out in the afternoon, and one in the evening. And these vehicles would be constantly rotated. So once we came in in the morning, that afternoon shift is there ready to take those same vehicles out. Um, so that's why we actually needed that one day of rest to make sure that these vehicles have time to cool off things like that one of the big unsung heroes of our deployments were our mechanics i've never experienced any kind of mechanics like these in my life a vehicle would get blown up one day 24 hours later the vehicle would be up and running ready to go i mean i can't even get my civilian mechanic to get that done in one day let alone that so those guys they were part of our team they they loved us to death we loved them because they wanted to make sure that we had the best equipment available i can't thank those guys Enough, and I. Every time I see them, I still talk to some of them. I always thank them. I mean, you guys were did a hell of a job over there. Can you
0: tell us a little bit more about the special equipment and the vehicles that you use for this job?
1: Yeah, uh, at the time, it was called an RG31. It's a South African vehicle that used to transport diplomats, and because they would have a problem with uh, shootings and IDs on their on their government, so we ended up adapting those vehicles. They were a little bit more bomb resistant than you say like a Humvee and things like that, but I mean, they weren't unpenetrable. Uh, We would also use another vehicle that was called the Buffalo. What it is, is it's a very large vehicle and it has this crane on the front of it. And it has what can I best describe as a spork looking thing. And we use this crane to dig up, move things around if we ever see anything. Uh, That was one of our main vehicles that we used. And was always the most helpful later on we developed uh new procedures uh there's a vehicle called a husky which is a one-man vehicle we were having problems with mass casualties um so there would be maybe between three to four people in a vehicle and sometimes that vehicle would get hit and sometimes you have three to four guys that are hurt so we developed a procedure where we use this vehicle called a husky and it's a one-man vehicle and it's a small cab and they would be at the front of the convoy uh looking for ieds and the sad thing about it is that vehicle is mainly used as bait so if that person ended up having an IED blown up on them we only had one casualty rather than three or four so it's it's a thing we had to do but a lot of us rotated out in that position we I've even done it a few times myself it's just something that we really cared about because we wanted to keep the rest of the convoy safe so we wanted to be the ones that made sure that we're all safe
0: you mentioned uh about the explosion, can you tell us a little bit more about what that was like to have a a bomb explode while you were on one of your missions?
1: It depends on the type of IED. Sometimes we would have IEDs that were buried underneath the ground. Usually those are bigger charges with bigger rounds and they leave bigger holes. The others are EFPs which are detonated by a laser. So anything that would go past this laser that's heated it would detonate the IED. Different different things happen with different types of IEDs and, and you could always tell when it would go off because there's always the flash and then the boom and sometimes we would see that flash for that first second and we knew that it was an IED. Um I've been blown up myself twice couple of my other buddies have been blown up three, four times. You don't, unless it's on you, you really don't know it's actually happening. I didn't know myself when it happened. I'm fortunate enough to have uh, all my limbs all together, but um, some of my fellow soldiers weren't. It's something that's... Uh, different, and you really don't know it hit you until a few seconds later.
0: I, I can't even imagine that. And and I appreciate your service and your willingness to do that for our country.
1: Uh, no problem.
0: You mentioned that there were fake bombs planted by Iraqi insurgents. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so during my deployment, our unit found a total of 126 IEDs. That's not including the ones that have blown up on us or the fake ones. So... What we ended up finding were these IEDs that are just plain in the middle of the road. They weren't disguised at all or anything like that. So usually when that happens, we know we're being watched. The enemy would put these fake IEDs out in the road and then they watch and see what we do. We can't get out of the vehicle even though we know it's fake because you never know. Um, So we would have to go through our procedures and call EOD and have them come out. We would tell them it's fake. Um... But uh, that's the bad thing about it. But yeah, we're, we're always constantly watched. That was the thing. We ended up hearing from an infantry unit in our area that they came across a cachet and actually found videos of us going over these fake IEDs and things like that and real IEDs. We, we knew it was us because we used to have battle numbers on our vehicles. After we found out that they were actually filming us, we had to get rid of the battle numbers because uh, we didn't want them to know who was who. That that gives uh, the hairs on the back of your head stand up a little bit when we hear about that.
0: Yeah, that is, that sounds unnerving. I can't even imagine what that experience was like. What was the most significant experience you had as a bomb hunter?
1: Significant, uh, I wouldn't call it significant, but the most impactful about it was when I lost four brothers Christmas of oh six were out on mission and we lost four guys during that mission three months later to the day we lost another one those were probably the where it really hit home for me that's where I struggled after I left the military was dealing with the loss they were all good friends of mine and going through the psychological part of it was really tough because at the time I would be like hey I want to go go talk to so-and-so and And it doesn't hit you until no, they've been gone for a while and gotta go through that emotion again that was probably one of the big things that was going on with me and also with a lot of the other guys because they were friends too that constant uh, feeling that you don't want to get attached to people but you kind of have to just to keep that distance because you don't want to feel that pain anymore. That's one of the big things I had to deal with.
0: You mentioned in your synopsis of your book that the military experience set the stage for friendships that will last a lifetime. And it sounds like that the experiences you're describing make mention of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what made these friendships so significant and so lasting?
1: Being... Through those missions with all those guys, it develops a huge bond. We knew what we were doing, and we knew that a lot of people didn't know what we were doing. So it made us want to get the job done, because during my first deployment, there was the surge. President Bush had a surge uh, during that time, so it was like ten to 20,000 new troops were coming in. So we we're busier than ever during that time. We were constantly out. We just felt the duty that we needed to do uh, the job to keep other soldiers safe. And that's what we wanted to do. Um, when we came back, we mainly just stuck to, stick together because that was what we were comfortable with. I guess we'd wanted to stay with those group of friends. I, especially me, I have friendships now that, are, that I still have today. A few of uh, the guys that I was with were came to my wedding, things like that. So they're considered my brothers and family and even their wives are considered my sisters. So it's just... A growing bond that will never be broken and it's just really strong.
0: When you go through something that is such a life-altering experience, I can understand how that can bring you close together. Yeah, very much. It's customary to thank people who were in the military for their service. Do you think your experiences in the military changed your views on what it means to serve your country?
1: Being a young kid, I always wanted to serve my country in one way. I didn't think it would be military. I thought it was more going to be sports and I was fortunate enough as a young kid to represent my country with sports. But being able to represent my country in the military, it's just a great pride that I have. It's something that's bigger than myself. And being able to protect the people that I care about really does mean a lot to me.
0: What were some of the things that you learned about Iraq and the Iraqi people as a result of your experience? I
1: was also stationed in Germany, too. So the culture is a huge thing that I learned about. You talk with people here in the United States, and some of them really think that our country's really bad and not run properly Oh, well, there's other countries out there that are far worse than anything that's going on over here being able to see how those people live it's, some of it's kind of uh, depressing and I mean, they're living out in little mud huts in the middle of nowhere in a field. I mean, you could rather live like that or would you rather live here in, in the States where I mean, things are plenty? You could go to the grocery store without being worried about getting blown up or things like that. We, we would come across some people we would see every day, especially it was a house that was outside one of the bases. We learned later on that that house ended up getting uh, hit uh, by some insurgents and uh, killed the people that were there so it's it's um it's a different culture shock and and it is and that's what i'm glad i appreciate the things that i have here in the states and everything like that i wish a lot of more people would experience that and they get a better understanding of how the rest of the world is
0: is there anything that you wish someone would ask you about the job of a bomb hunter
1: um not um ask me. It's more of the awareness. When I came back from my deployments, I would turn on the news and sometimes there would be something about uh, the Iraq war and things like that. And they would actually talk about uh, things that were going on in Iraq and the different IEDs and things like that. Or They would say new new IED that's out. You know, that I, we've been dealing with that IED for last four or five years. The information that, to get out there would be a lot more helpful because I, I talk with a lot of people and they have no idea what a combat engineer is. And when I explain what we did, I, we're, we're labeled as probably one of the most craziest people in the military, but hey, it's something that we enjoyed and wanted to, to do, and um, we're glad to do it.
0: Well, hopefully uh, your book and you appearing on different podcasts will bring a greater awareness to the job and the things that you and your colleagues did in the military. Yeah. Would you share with us some of the struggles you faced since you've returned from Iraq?
1: Yeah, as I said, I, I struggled a lot with the incidences that happened on Christmas Day, uh, where we lost our, our brothers. A lot of things went wrong that day, and things that shouldn't have happened, I explained it all. And it changed my views on a lot of things. I talk about that at that moment was, I felt the most expendable I've ever in my life. And that, that, Uh, experience caused a lot of trust issues for me. I, the only people I ever trusted were the guys that I was with. It came to a point, you tell me the sky was blue. I wouldn't believe you if you were just a stranger. It was that, that's serious when I was finally leaving. It was hard to develop friendships and things like that. I I keep contact with my buddies. as it was the only friendships I had at the time, and but I struggled with a lot of the things that were going on. I actually ended up uh, taking up fish keeping, so I kept aquariums and fish and things like that to keep my mind occupied off the of things. It did help, uh, kept me focused. It didn't allow me to think about everything that was going on, but I also struggled with nightmares every night. That was one of the main things uh, i just be brought back to that place and that time, and hardly ever getting any sleep and things like that.
0: How are things for you now?
1: At now. I am at peace with myself and the last year I've done a lot of healing. It all started with the book Before I finally had my last mental breakdown in my kitchen and all the emotion and feeling just came out of me. And I was saying, man, maybe I should do some videos, you know, talk about what happened and things like that. I ended up doing that, but I'm not that social media savvy and things like that. So I said, you know what, maybe um, I'll write it down. And I started when I was in college and I just kept writing and writing and writing. The more I wrote, I just felt the weight off my shoulders even more and more. I was pushing all that pain and, and suffering and thoughts on the paper, it was leaving me. I wasn't keeping it in anymore. And by the time I finished writing it, I, I felt so relieved and thinking clear and uh, more at peace with myself and became more comfortable and things like that. That was mainly the main thing. I was—I still struggled with the little quirks and things like that I still have, um, but I'm working on them now. It's, uh, it's a slow process and I'm actually glad that I have friends that uh, are always asking me how I'm doing, hey, things like that. and It helps. I'm just so much at peace right now.
0: That's, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing better. And writing is such a healing process. And um, I'm, I'm so glad to be able to promote your book to anyone who's interested in reading more about this topic. According to the United States Department of Veteran Affairs, an average of 22 veterans die by suicide each day. Why do you think so many veterans struggle with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder?
1: The number one problem, I believe, is when soldiers leave the military, they do not have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're just going to go downhill right away. That's where the drinking and the drugs come in and the carelessness and everything like that. When I left the military, I wanted to join the Chicago police force, but I had a lot of hearing loss. I tried to join TSA too. I couldn't join any of those things because of my hearing. So it was kind of, I was had a plan, but it kind of went downhill a little bit, but I uh, was taking odd jobs and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to school. I ended up going back to college. I got my degree and um, now I work as a property manager. The main thing is to always have a plan. And what is sad about it is, is that there's not really a lot of information on resources things like that. When I ended up going back to college, I actually stumbled across uh, a table in the library and it was a woman with uh, with a bunch of resources. I asked her, uh, where, where are you guys at? And she told me that I found out that she was literally seven blocks away from my house, this resource center. And for five, seven years, I didn't even know this place even existed. <laughs> the best thing we probably ever get is when we leave the military is here's the hotline number. And sometimes they give you a run around on that hotline number and things like that. So um, uh, it was kind of sad that I actually had to go out and find these resources myself. I ended up going to this resource center and was doing a little bit of therapy, but at the time I wasn't ready and took me a couple of years later, than I wrote my book, things like that. It's just, it's sad. And that act, that number has actually gone up in the last year. I know a couple of years ago, it was 21 per day and now it's 22. So on social media, there is things that are coming out better. And that's why I like to do these too, because I want to get that awareness out as well, because I know there's a lot of family members out there that have soldiers and I know their soldiers might be struggling and they don't know where to go to help. Um, So it takes a little work to find these resource centers, but they are out there. I wish they would uh, promote uh, where they're at and things like that, because I mean, you hear about commercials to join the military, but you never hear any commercials about, hey, helping a soldier out and things like that.
0: It sounds like the military could be doing a lot more to help veterans.
1: It is. I know when I left the military, uh, the last three months of my contract, I ended up uh, being uh, in active reserve. So if I was still part of the military, but if they needed me, they could call me if something happened. The last three months of my time, <clears throat> um, I would get emails every day. I would get phone calls every day. I even had recruiters show up at my house saying to come back in. Um, it was never... <laughs> Uh, hey, here's here's this phone number or this resource center, call this, call that. That last day when my contract finally ended, phone calls stopped, emails stopped, people stopped coming to my house. It was only they wanted you to come in. It wasn't any actual way to help. So it's it's a sad thing, but I mean, we have to do better.
0: I think we have to do a lot better as a nation to be able to support people who served our country in the military. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know about you or your story?
1: My story is I always I always say that it's a small chapter in a big book. There's hundreds and thousands of other soldiers that have stories too, and I wish a lot of them would come out more and say their side too. I'm sure it, it would help others by seeing it and reading it. You know, hey, maybe I should do this too. Maybe it'll help me. And I never thought writing a book and my entire life, and I actually did, and I don't regret it. I feel 100 times better. I haven't had a nightmare in over a year now, so that's one of the big things. I don't dwell on it anymore. I leave it all on paper. I don't have to deal with it anymore.
0: Where can listeners find out more about your book?
1: Uh, right now, it's on Amazon for paperback and Kindle. You could also find me on Goodreads. If you go on goodreads.com, uh, you type in the title of my book, uh, Bomb Hunter Story, and it'll bring you to my author page and if If you actually have any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them.
0: You can find Eric's memoir, A Bomb Hunter Story, My Life Clearing the Roads of Iraq, on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Eric, it was great to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking your time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Which two famous rivers flow through Iraq? Iraq has two major rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris. We'll end the show with something punny. What month do soldiers hate? March. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to The Curious Professor Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning, and be curious with Dr. B.